Hi, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, coming to you once again from Hot Springs, Arkansas. Today with episode 647, I believe. 647 of the Survival Podcast. Today we're going to talk about 12 methods of individual food production. How we can be producers versus straight consumers of our own food, and I think it's important that we do that. Um, it kind of ties in with what I kind of summed up the show with yesterday, uh, talking about Thomas Jefferson's belief that we should become a nation of farmers and how, in reality, a lot of people think that's not what happened, but it's exactly what happened. And I want to talk to you a little bit today about what happened to that nation of farmers, where they've gone, where they went. And uh, how maybe we can bring some of it back. And beyond farming, uh, 12 great ways that you can begin to take some level of control over where the food you eat comes from. And take some role in the production of that food as well. Before we do that, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today is Fortress Self-Defense Consultants. That's Frank Sharp Jr.'s operation there. Um, you know... It's great to have guns. There's nothing wrong with having guns. I'm a huge supporter of our Constitution, our Bill of Rights, and, of course, the Second Amendment. Uh, Lifetime member of the National Rifle Association. I mean, you name it, I am for gun ownership. But I'll also tell you something else I'm for, actually being proficient with with your gun. And I don't care whether you're in the field hunting or using it for self-defense of your home. If you're not proficient with a gun, it's just a um, very inadequate and overpriced tool. And I often hear from people say, hey, you know, what what gun should I buy next? I have this and I have that. And they have this laundry list of, of guns that they already have. And my, my question is often, have you taken any firearms uh, uh, training? And if they tell me no, a lot of times they say, well, maybe it's time to, to skip a gun purchase and become more proficient with what you already own. That's what they can help you do at Fortress Self-Defense Consultants. And I'll tell you what's really cool about them. If you have a small group and uh, you want training, but you're not able to get to their facility, they'll travel for you. So get in, tr- in touch with Frank today and find out if you can set up a training for yourself. Uh, next up today is Jeff Gleason, the Berkey guy, available at directive21.com. Um, I'll tell you, there is nothing in this world that is more important to our survival than water, other than possibly air. I mean, if we can, if I put you in a plastic bag for you know a few minutes, you'll probably die. But other than that, right? The, the number one need that we have, the one thing that we can go the least amount of time without, is water. And in a disaster, one of the first things that generally gets really damaged and polluted is the water supply. 
And then I don't know if you're aware of this, but on a day-to-day basis, most water systems have things in them like chlorine and fluoride, and Jeff can help you get that stuff out as well. So I use a Berkey for my everyday water use. And even once we move up here uh, to the bug-out location permanently, which is like a week away from that final last bit of stuff coming up here, um, we're still going to use it. We're not going to use the fluoride filters anymore, obviously, but you never know when you know some cliptosporidium or some other type of uh, uh, pathogen can get into your water supply, even with a deep well like we have. So it never hurts to at least run your w- drinking water through a filtration system, and that way it's already in place if we ever have a contamination. Um, I also want to remind you guys, do check out our gear shop. Tiffany, uh, who's also known as uh, Sister Wolf, and Rich, uh, who's also known as The Wilderness, they do a great job with the gear shop. They've brought some really cool stuff into it lately. Check out our TSP branded Victor Knox flashlights. Those things are like the highest quality flashlight you can get your hands on. They're super bright. Built like a tank, and they're a discontinued model. Uh, so when they're gone, they're gone. So check out the TSP Victorinox flashlights. Check out our new geocache coins. Uh, we just have a ton of stuff there that's really cool. They'll let you show your affiliation with the show. So check them out today. Uh, also connect with me at Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. And last but not least, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. If you do that, you get an exclusive uh, content available only to members. You're supporting the show at about $0.20 cents an episode. You get discounts to over 25 vendors. Uh, you can find information on the Member Support Brigade. You can find information for getting in touch with all our sponsors. Find a way to get to the gear shop. Find a way to connect with us on YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook. All that good stuff at thesurvivalpodcast.com. So let's get into the main topic of today's show again, which is let's talk about individual food production. But before we do that, let's talk about how we we used to be that already. That's, that's what we were. Um, Back during the the foundational days of our country, our founders who all got together to declare independence and and to win independence and and to keep people rallied and eventually to come up with our form of government, which of course is supposed to be a constitutional republic, we can say that we've we've kind of fallen away from from what that's really supposed to mean over the years as well. But they didn't really agree, I think, the way that we tend to think of them agreeing. We have these great pictures of them all coming together to sign the Declaration. Uh, we've got all different types of, uh, I think, what you'd call almost like romantic fantasies about what our founders were like and how they interacted with each other. They actually had a great deal of disagreement with each other. And some of them, you know, chiefly among them, folks like Aaron Burr, believe that our nation's future was an industrialized future. Uh, more in line with what the northern states were already beginning to do. And they were going into like um, John Adams' uh, presidency, uh, things like that. And, um, you know, second term, going into Jefferson's presidency, uh, third president of the United States. We're going into those times when I'm talking about here. And uh, the, the thought that it was actually good for the nation to be a debt nation, a, a debt-laden nation, because it would put more responsibility on the federal government, and they, they saw the nation as needing a strong central government. And then there was this other group of people, call them the anti-federalists, they eventually became the Republicans, um, that believed very much the opposite, that the individual states needed to maintain a tremendous amount of their sovereignty, and chief among these folks was Jefferson himself. And Jefferson saw a future for the United States as a nation of farmers. And I think that there's a lot 
of reasons for that. The more I read of Jefferson's writings in regard to gardening and farming, uh, the more I see how much he just had a passionate love for it. And that was obviously part of it. But I also think that we, we, we tend to lose track with where we were to where we are. And we don't understand that when people grew food in, you know, let's say, 1805, right, um, 1810, 1812, in those, those, those years, that a lot of it was for self-consumption. And it wasn't just like, oh, it would be nice to have fresh, you know, veg- vegetables at the table. There was a level of sustenance there. There was a level of requirement there. So it was even more the case than it is today where we can look and go, the more of your own food you produce, the more self-reliant and independent you are. And I think Jefferson understood that. Uh, a great deal. Uh, Jefferson actually, I remember one of his writings I read that said that a man could create freedom simply by sowing a thimbleful of lettuce seeds once a week from the beginning till the end of the growing season, which is fairly long when you're growing something like lettuce. So Jefferson's concept of the agrarian society was as much about liberty and independence as it was about a good way to live in a way that he found very pleasing to live. You got to remember, Jefferson was an attorney. So he wasn't just a guy that was wanting to go, you know, he wasn't the, the, the 1800 equivalent of a granola chewing hippie the way that I think some people maybe have made him out to be at this point in time in our history. So he had this vision, and then the other side had this, this, this opposite vision of this industrial superpower rising. And the agrarian saw it as a more independent, um, staying more of a confederation of states, which is what the United States was. That's why before the Civil War, it wasn't the United States, it was these United States, or these states united. So there was a great, great sense of autonomy. There was a great sense of, yes, we're all American, but if I'm from North Carolina and you're from Virginia, that, that North Carolina is my first love and Virginia is your first love, and we come together where we need to, but individually the states were almost like small nations within themselves making up a larger nation rather than just um, what they've become today. And my only reason for going into this level of a kind of a history lesson and, and, and giving it to you in a way that you'll probably never hear it in one of our schools is because we have to understand that both sides got what they wanted. That it wasn't like, because you look out today and you look at these, these high, this highway system, you know, primarily, uh, envisioned in, in the fifties by, by Eisenhower that stretches from one coast to another. But even before we had that, even before the post World War, uh, yeah, the post World War II buildup, we had you know Route 66, and we had some of the greatest industries in the world built right here in America. America is the nation that that you know created the mass production line and the automobile. Uh, with that, we had a guy like Henry Ford. Henry Ford is such a genius. He, the guy really was. This is one of the stories I love about Ford. When they first started putting the Model T uh, together and put the production line together, uh, he didn't build everything. He had you know subcontractors build components, ship them to his plant, and he assembled them. So one of the contracts was to build the motors. 
So they would spec out the contract however they wanted it, and he would he spec'd out not just the motor, but the crate that the motor came in, and the way the dimensions of the motor, uh, the crate, and how it had to be put together, and a couple holes that had to be drilled in the crate, and because the contractors wanted the contract. Uh, they, they did whatever Mr. Ford wanted. If he wants the crate a certain way, fine. We don't care. We'll do that. That's easy. So they do this, and then the crates come in, and the people on the assembly line pull the crate apart, yank the motor out, take the wood from the crate, piece it together uh, based on the way it was designed, and it became the floorboards in the car. Right? So th- we're the nation that put a man on the moon. We're, we're the nation that... They created almost every great innovation in technology uh, over, you know, from about the time of the Civil War up until very, very recently. Honestly, so we look at that, and we all, and we then we say, well, these guys also wanted debt, and look at all the debt we got. So we think, well, the 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 Aaron Burrs, right? The Aaron Burrs won out. The uh, the the Federalists won. Well, it's not really how it worked. The two grew concurrently together, and I believe each made the other stronger. The nation was a nation of farmers. From New England down to the Deep South, everybody farmed. And it wasn't just, you know, there were people out there that had, you know, a hundred or two hundred acres or something like that, uh, that, that, you know, and, and those types of concerns at the time were using slaves because we didn't have the mechanization to do without them on such a large farm. But there were tremendous numbers of farmers in the north where there was no slavery uh, that would maybe have a hired hand or something like that. And, and they might farm 30, 40, 80 acres. And, and all of these people from, from the 40-acre uh, homestead to the you know, multi-hundred acres to thousands of acres a plantation were all farmers. And these were all families, whether very wealthy or very poor, that made their living 100% from agricultural production. But on top of this, there were tradesmen and cobblers and, and blacksmiths and every type of, uh, of, of profession you can think of. And as, as technology evolved and we went into more of the factory worker, there were factory workers and most of these people, if they had any wealth, if they had any land at all, and remember at the time, land was wealth, and land was relatively easy to acquire, farms. So the person might have a trade or a profession that they made the majority of their income with, but they still had a farm. And the farm provided food for the family, and the surplus was sold for additional income for the family. And the nation was indeed a nation of farmers. And it was also a nation of men that knew how to fish and to hunt, and to forage, and, and you know, kids went out and picked berries. I mean, we were a nation that lived off of the land and off of our industry at the same time. And somewhere along the way, that dual nature of the American citizen began to die off. More and more people would move to the cities, get their place in the city, and realize that I could get everything I need from the city, and if they were making enough money... Along the way, we had the, the, the labor movement, and workers got more rights and better pay and better conditions. And working for someone in a factory or a mill or an office or what have you became a better thing. It wasn't as oppressive. And, I mean, for all of the bad that the labor unions are doing today, at the time they were needed and all of this evolution happened, well, as it became more and more comfortable, 
the the plows felt less like freedom and more like slavery. And men and women and their families moved away from farming and more and more to, to, to a totally dependent lifestyle. And then after World War II, and the baby boomers came home, and we had the building boom, and suburbia just began to expand like a dragon across America, much of this mentality, much of this, what was holding back on was lost. Fortunately, there were families all over America that refused to let it go. Families with their little pieces of land, a half acre, an acre, two acres, that never moved to suburbia, that preserved this mentality and passed it on. And fortunately for me, I grew up in such a family. And today, people are beginning to look back and realize that this is not you know, some kind of a fantasy, that the way these people lived was actually pretty intelligent. And that's why you're seeing the boom in suburban and urban homesteading. You're seeing people keep chickens. You're seeing all types of things going on today that just 20 years ago seemed, you know, like there'd be like maybe one person that did this and they were like, you know, Uncle Eddie's weird, uh, weird, weird, weird kid, you know, or something like that. Your third cousin twice removed might be the person that does this. And now everybody's doing it and there's industries popping up around it and it's all coming back. And my question to you is why? Why? And my belief is because I don't care if you go out in the woods and you find a stand of blackberries and you pick a bucket of them and you bring them home, or you toil in the soil and you, you grow your own crop in your backyard, or you become proficient with the bow and you go out into the woods in the fall and, and you take a deer and you bring that meat home. I don't care how you do it. I don't care if you go to the farmer's market, buy from a local grower, actually shake the hand and feel the calluses on the hand of the, of the hand that grew that food and bring it home and dehydrate it or can it or whatever it is. Whenever you start to take a piece of your own food supply into your own control, you feel something in your heart that we can only describe as power. And it's something that we are supposed to do. If you look at the way the human body is built, we're built to walk, we're built to assess, we're built to forage, we're built to move. And I don't just mean to, you know from one, one couch to the next to find the remote control. We're built to actually be hunter-gatherers. That is how we evolved. And again, you don't have to to believe in evolution or you don't have to not believe in creation or, or anything like that. Regardless of how we got here, for thousands of years, mankind walked. And he walked everywhere. And it was only very recently that we went into agricultural-based settlement. And even at that point, there was a lot of hunting and gathering that went commensurate with it. So some of the people would stay and farm and some of the people would go out and hunt. And that is who we are, and that's how our bodies and our spirits and our, 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 you know, our minds evolve to be. So when you take a step back today, I actually think you're taking a step forward. You're taking a step forward toward us reclaiming as a species who we really are. A, a species that's capable of shaping land and feeding ourselves and doing it away uh, that is okay, that is good for the planet. We don't have to rape and pillage the earth to feed ourselves. We really don't. In fact, we only started raping and pillaging the earth to feed ourselves uh, with the advent of modern agriculture and modern mining. If we took away those two things, most of the damage that we're doing would go away. Uh, that and, and what we do with our garbage. 
Uh, if we could fix those three things, we could fix 95. You know, we don't have to worry about CO2, folks. It's not about your exhaling. It's about what we're doing to the land. It's about what we're doing to our oceans. It's about what we're doing to our water. It's about what we're doing to our soil. These are the things that environmentalists, if you really care, this is what you should be really worried about. The, the toxins produced by mining and, and industry and things like that. I don't want to go off on that today, but we just go back a hundred years, most of it wasn't an issue. Anyway, I wanted to make the transition now and start talking about these individual methods of food production, but I also want you to really understand something. Um, why I do so much on this. When I started this show, some of the first things I talked about with emergency preparedness was storing food. Things like MREs, long-term food stores, the rice and bean stuff, five-gallon buckets, eat what you store, store what you eat. And I did a lot on that initially because it's the easy thing to get started. I was getting the show started, building an audience, and I wanted people that came in early to be able to at least do something today. And a lot of the stuff with individual production, you can do something today, but you don't see the results until tomorrow. If you go out and make your pantry deep, uh, at the end of the day, and, and with, a, with a couple hundred bucks, you can look in there and you've got something done. And with the abundance that's available right now and how cheap it all still really is, I, you know, I'm not living 100% off the land and I have no intention on doing so unless I have to. Uh, I'd like to live maybe 60 to 70% off the land, but I still want to go out and utilize those other things. And I still think food storage is important. And I want you to do it and I want you to practice it, both with the long-term storables and with eat what you store, store what you eat. But if you're doing that, it's almost like, you know, sometimes they talk about the electric cars and the hybrids and all, and, and the, they use uh, electricity, plug-in cars, and they say they don't have lower emissions, just a longer tailpipe. And I don't think it's 100% true because electricity generally is created cleaner uh, than, than gasoline can burn uh, because of the refinement process and everything else that goes with that. But electric cars do have emissions, and it's at the place that the electricity is generated. It's either nuclear waste or coal, coal, uh, you know, coal fumes and the damage done by coal mining or, or whatever method of electricity, unless it's wind. And then there was still the, you know, the stuff that went into producing the windmill and maintaining the windmill. Um, so the point is that, you know, your electric car just has its emissions somewhere else. Well, when you look at food storage, you still have dependence. Your dependence just has a longer tailpipe. Since you bought the food a year ago, you were dependent a year ago, but today you're not because you have it. You've become self-reliant with that food, but you're not self-sufficient because when it runs out, you can't produce anymore. When we start taking production into our own hands, we, we begin to get actual independence, not just a longer tailpipe from dependence, right? So with that, let's go ahead and start talking about these different methods of food production. The first one is what I'm going to say the least about today because it's something we talk about so much and it's so obvious to most people, but it's conventional gardening. I think everybody has room for some sort of conventional gardening on their property. I don't care whether that is uh, maybe producing a little bit from a container garden on, on the back of your deck if you don't have a lot of space and land, or whether it's a, a, a mini farm. And anything in between, I think gardening is something that we all should be doing, we should all be practicing, and how much is based on your time, uh, your, the availability of resources that you have, your money, and your land area. Obviously, if you only have a small deck, you can't do with somebody that has a, you know, a quarter of an acre. And a quarter of an acre, you can't maybe do as much as somebody that has two acres. 
So there are limitations there. And, and again, I don't want to go too deep into it because I do entire shows on gardening. But obviously, if I left gardening out, everybody would have been like, Jack, what the hell's wrong with you? Why don't you include gardening? But kind of in the same vein and in a different light is guerrilla gardening. And I think that guerrilla gardening in America has become the realm of the hippie planting, you know, pretty low irrigation requiring flowers and ornamental plants and highway medians in California. But guerrilla gardening has so many more aspects of it that I think we need to understand it better as, as individuals and realize that it's something we might even do if we live in a remote five-acre piece of ground like I do now. You know, I live on this old dirt road way up on top of a mountaintop, and I've got five acres to work with. And you'd say, well, Jack, why do you grill a garden at all? Why even worry? Well, um, let me put it to you this way. I was thinking about planting a bunch of muscadine grapes. And I probably still will plant some to get a specific variety of, or something like that. But... Over the last couple of years, I haven't really noticed many wild muscadines on my property. But this area that we cleared out in the back uh, has been colonized. And there must be a thousand muscadine plants coming up all over the place. So I can either go build a very complex trellis, or I can go out there and select these muscadine vines that are going to do the best and train them onto uh, existing tree structures so that they don't end up with all of the grapes a thousand feet up in the canopy or what have you. And I can harvest all of these muscadines by doing absolutely nothing. Guess what, folks? That's a form of guerrilla gardening. Instead of going out and planting something that's not supposed to be there, what I'm actually doing is encouraging, training, and taking advantage of a natural production system. Same thing I've done up here with blackberries and been doing. Find areas with heavy blackberry growth, clear out some of the competing vegetation, which isn't really that necessary because they're so aggressive in themselves, provide additional uh, water uh, containment and mulching, and I get great big blackberries twice as big as the ones up by my neighbor's property at the top of the hill. And they, why, why are your blackberries so big? Because my blackberries get more water. Oh, you water your blackberries? No, I put in some little bit of like mini swales and stuff like that and some, some mulch and, and whatever, and, and this is the results. So guerrilla gardening, I think, is something we really need to kind of think about in a different light. And I've done some full shows on that. So it, it, we can also guerrilla garden by finding vacant pieces of land and even maybe talking to land order, loaner, landowners and going out there and planting certain things that will grow that need very little of our attention that we can just come back and harvest or maybe only tend on a weekly or a, you know once every other week basis. There's all types of opportunities. Guerrilla gardening is not in of itself mean that we have to be doing something illegal. In fact, it's better that we're not doing something illegal. It's not just uh, the hippies can plant flowers now because the cops will turn their back because they don't really think there's a problem here. That's not really what it's all about. You know, what I said when I did the first Guerrilla Gardening show is we, we think of that as this illegal or this negative thing, but the reality is if we look up the term guerrilla warfare, it's unconventional warfare. So that what is unconventional changes over time, right? So a lot of the guerrilla gardening techniques were the way that the Native Americans tended gardens before we got here started screwing everything up. There were all these different plant varieties in, in, in the California, kind of the semi-desert, desert region of California. Uh, not the true desert, but kind of that overlap where you've got kind of that mix of the scrub brush and the desert coming together. And there were all these different plants like manzanito and, and all these other plants that, that the natives relied on for food. And it didn't look like they were anything but wild plants. And, of course, we you know pushed the natives off their land, wiped them out, gave them diseases, all these other horrible things. And for about a hundred years, these plant systems just seemed to be fine. 
And then recently, wildlife biologists have noticed that these systems sort of are breaking down. And only now are they talking to a few of the elders that are left around that remember the traditions and beginning to understand that these systems, while they looked wild, were actually being cultivated. So realize that when we talk about guerrilla gardening, we're talking about unconventional gardening. So almost anything that you do that most people today would look at and go, what are you doing, um, is guerrilla gardening or maybe permaculture, which we'll get to in a bit. Tied in with guerrilla gardening, then, is foraging. When I was a kid, there were certain times of the year that we just knew to do certain things. And the first thing that would usually uh, come in were the, the blueberries. And there were certain times of the year where we'd just all get in the Jeep and, and pile in, and we look like a bunch of uh, uh, you know uh, natives, you know the way they hang on the side of vehicles and all. There would be so many of us in maybe one Jeep, and we'd go up on the mountain, We'd pick blueberries. We might spend three or four hours with the whole family picking blueberries. We'd come back with quarts and quarts of blueberries. And my grandmother would freeze some, and she'd make some into pies and make some into cakes. And, I mean, we would get all of this, this bounty for spending time together as a family. That was the cost. The cost was to go out and do that. And then the next thing that would usually come in were the wild strawberries, and there was this little patch close to the house. And I would usually do that myself because... I, I just knew where they were, and I would come back, and I would only get a few quarts, but they were the best strawberries we had ever eaten, and, and they were right there. And there were all other types. There were, you know, when I lived in Florida before we moved to Pennsylvania, blackberries were everywhere. The, the blackberries there can't, were amazing even compared to the blackberries here that I help along in Arkansas because it rained so much there in that great sandy soil and that humid environment. They just did unbelievable. I mean, the wild blackberries in the Jacksonville, Florida area uh, grew to rival d domestic blackberries, maybe not in size, but certainly more flavorful and, and very, very large for a wild blackberry. There was mushroom hunting that we did. We would go out and we would we would look for um, I think they're called mataki is the is the correct word for them, uh, but we would just call them a ram's head mushroom. It's also known as a uh, a hen of the woods mushroom. And there were areas that my family still knows to go in the Pennsylvania area where you could find half a truckload of these things. They grow anywhere from the size of a very large softball to like bigger than a basketball. And they look like multiple little mushrooms. And they always grow on a certain side of the oak trees. And if you cut them versus just yank them out, uh, they tend to come back year after year after year. And we had our little mushroom routes that we would run and do that. And they sold for good money. So whatever we didn't, we, we would do some in our chow chow relish, which is kind of like a, uh, a, a large chunky vegetable relish. We would do some uh, that we would we would blanch and freeze. We would eat some fresh. I mean, we would do lots with them. But we would get so many. We would take my uncle would take them down to the bar room and we'd sell them for ten bucks a pound. And we would bring money into the family from foraging. So foraging takes on a whole new light if we start to really expand our minds as to what it can mean. I don't want to go too... I'm going to do some shows on foraging in the future. I'm even going to try to get the guy Nick had on Green Dean because I have some interesting questions for him from Eat the Weeds. He's kind of a master forager. And I'm going to try to get some local experts from the, this area here in Arkansas maybe to come on the air with me and maybe come in the studio and do that. So there's a lot that can be done with that. So foraging leads us right to hunting. And this was something that every frontiersman did. That's something that every colonist did. Back in the day before we had like, you know, rifle, rifleman magazine and stuff like that and everybody was coming out with a new cartridge or a new rifle or what have you and everybody had a front stuff, stuff or musket. Basically they had a, you had a, a musket that would be like, you know, 72 caliber or something like that with a patch and ball smoothbore. And if you wanted to shoot something big, 
you shoved a great big musket ball down there and you hoped you could hit it because they were only accurate for so far. And if you wanted to shoot a bird or something else, you put down shot like a shotgun. And that one uh, flintlock musket was your shotgun and your rifle in one. The only thing was you had to load it before you went out, so you better know what you were going to look for. And along the way, we came up with rifles and began to specialize in all. But, you know, my point is going, and it's still today, and there's places in America where it's not unusual to be a hunter. Uh, this gentleman that I've met here that's helping me build a deck today, uh, I posted some pictures of the one we got like halfway done with yesterday because Lowe's was late delivering the wood. Um, this guy hunts like crazy. And he's a bow hunter, and he's already cluing me into some areas to hunt around here. Um, I asked him, I said, you don't buy much meat. He says, he says I buy some steak and all like that, but he said he hasn't bought a pound of hamburger in 12 years. Uh, we, there's a place not far from here called Hot Springs Village. It's uh, the largest gated community in the world. A lot of retired people live in there. And, uh, I mean, this is huge. When you hear gated, you might think like fence preserve hunting or something. But, no, this is like a massive, massive tens of thousands of acres and uh, there's tons of deer in there and they don't get hunted because it's a private gated community and uh, there's too many deer in there so they've started doing permits last year he shot close to a dozen deer uh, with these special permits that didn't even go against his license. You might want to check into things. There's more things like that than you might imagine out there. When I lived in Pennsylvania, I got a special permit to hunt on a seminary grounds where the, the, these uh, guys went to learn to become priests. And most of these things are only open to bow hunters because we can go in and do things that rifle hunters can't. Uh, it's a much more safe thing for the people that are there. We don't disturb people. Uh, I'll tell you, the bow hunter is, is specialized. It really is. I've been in tree stands, uh, sitting in a tree stand, watching for game. I've had people standing around talking, you know, 15 feet from my tree while a Tweety Bird is sitting on my arrow. And the Tweety Bird and the people don't know that you're there. So if you're going to be a hunter, I really encourage you to start learning about archery. It opens up so many new things to you. I was talking to this guy, Johnny, yesterday, and I said, he was talking to me about there are some bears in the area now. There's going to be more of them. And I said, what's the bear season? He said, oh, it's a week um, rifle season, which is a pretty long season for bear, and it coincides with deer season and all. And uh, he said, but if you sit here a bow hunter, he goes, it's long. And I don't remember how long he said, but it's you know multiple weeks that it's available. So if you're going to be a hunter, if you start looking at archery, you're going to open up new opportunities for yourself. And I'll tell you that there's nothing that compares to full draw on a game animal and the moment before the release and hearing your heart as though it's beating in your ears. And it just doesn't happen with a gun. It might happen the first time with a gun, but it happens every time with a bow. It's something special. It's a natural high. And I think it's because we're connecting to who we really are. I think man was meant to hunt with the bow. I'm going to let that go, or I'll just do the whole show on bow hunting. We go from hunting, we go to fishing. And I think fishing, if we look at fishing today, and sport and recreational fishing, we see so many people out there with $25,000 bass boats. They have tackles and lures that are another $5,000 worth of equipment. They're fishing with $200 rods topped off with a $300 reel, and they have six of those. They have depth finders and all this other crap. I grew up fishing on the side of the canals in Florida, and a lot of times it would be go out into the swamp, find a stand of bamboo, cut a piece of bamboo down, tie a string on it, you know, set up some hooks and go out and fish. And I'd come home with a mess of really big black bullheads uh, or really big bluegills. And in Florida, it was it was a fisherman's paradise. You, if, if water stood somewhere 
for you know more than a couple days that we're fishing it. I, I, literally, I, I'm going to tell you a story. It's going to sound like a fish story, and it is a fish story, but it's a true fish story. There were these uh, this apartment complex we lived in when I was a kid. There were these group of three tennis courts um, toward the back of the complex. In the adults-only section, which is where the kids were always hanging out. And uh, the last court would literally be about six inches deep in water when the swamp flooded onto it when we had heavy rains, which was happening you know, several times. You would get really heavy rains, even for Florida. And we used to take our bicycles down there on the court, and when you rode your bike in this water, you would literally just like being on ice and sliding. We'd just wreck and fall over, and we did all this stuff on purpose because it was kind of fun. You know, it just was. You weren't going to get hurt because, I don't know, the tennis courts, when they got wet, they got real slippery, so you didn't skin yourself up at all, and, and we'd do donuts on our bicycles. So we were, you know, 10, and we thought we were cool. Well, after about three or four days of this, there were these great big weird-looking minnows that almost had like an orange crown-looking thing on their head. They would be swimming around on the tennis courts. They basically come up out of the swamp, and I guess they went back when the water retreated. So when I say that wherever water was, fish showed up, I literally mean that, even though we didn't fish for those. Did put a couple in a tank, though. But fishing, to me, if we get away from all this huge expense, actually becomes a legitimate form of food production, and there's a lot of very low-cost ways that we can fish. And I, again, this is one of these things I could just go off on a tangent on and talk for hours, but... Uh, the big thing with fishing is I think we need, especially when it comes to getting food for ourselves, stick to panfish uh, and, and easily accessible fish. Bluegill, crappie, sand bass, uh, catfish, uh, those four for me here are just huge, huge sources of food. Now that I'm up here in Arkansas, trout again will be part of that. When I was living in Pennsylvania, true they were stocked, but somebody had to go catch them. And I knew a lot of streams just by working for a while that I was able to go out and fish for trout year-round in, or at least during the, the legal season because there were wild fish there. Um, so learn the areas, get a mentor with fishing, but realize you don't need a $25,000 boat to make fishing part of your life. It can be a cane pole in the right area. And a cane pole, you know, can, can cost you literally the cost of the monofilament and the hooks. Uh, I don't think that's maybe the best thing to do, but there are actually places where I think you'll do better with a cane pole than you do with fancy equipment because of just the way you can place lines into uh, heavy covered areas and things like that. If it's legal in your area, you can take up jug fishing and trot lining uh, and, and limb lining, and it opens a whole new level of production. You can go out and set set jugs, uh, kick back on a cheap little skiff boat, you know, something that you pay three or $400 for a John boat, watch your jugs, and you can come home with a limit of catfish every day in some areas. I know if you live in Minnesota, it's probably not the case. It's probably not legal. It's probably not even possible anyway. Uh, but if you live in the South, that's one of the advantages you have. If you live in Minnesota, you live in the land of, what, 10,000 lakes. So now you have walleye and so you know perch and pike and things that we don't have here. So wherever you live, what I'm saying is learn the things that are easily accessible with fishing you know, and make fish part of your diet. If you can get to a point where you're eating fish two or three times a month even, that's two or three times you're not going to the supermarket. And even if there's a cost associated with fishing on some level, gas and bait or what have you, my God, you don't generally sit around your house and do nothing. You're generally doing something. Now you're doing a pastime that's that's good for yourself. Uh, it doesn't really cost that much money, and it provides food. Versus a pastime that costs more money isn't really good for you that most Americans tend to be engaged in. And all of these things begin to mesh together. Um, the next one I want to talk about is trapping. I'm going to be brief on this one because it's kind of specialized. But there is 
still the sport of trapping in America. As a kid, I ran trap lines for money. And the things that I primarily trapped were raccoon, possum, and red and gray fox. And there were some other things that would show up, but those were the four primary things that I would, I would trap. And uh, I did some muskrat trapping, but uh, the areas that they were accessible to were a little bit more difficult for me to get to on a daily basis. So I did some limited muskrat trapping. But muskrat, raccoon, possum, all edible. I uh, never ate fox. Uh, just something about canines. It's something I don't really... Um, and the, the one time I actually tried a piece of coyote, it was not good. Uh, but possum, eh, possum's all right. Raccoon is great. Um, Johnny Max just did a thing where he fed the queen raccoon stew and she thought it was rabbit. She was on the air saying she was going to throw up. That's Johnny Max and the queen at, uh, the self-sufficient homestead podcast, but she liked it until she knew what it was. Raccoon is one of the best meats out there. And as a trapper, I have both a hide that I can use for income and I have meat that I can use. So I just don't want you to overlook trapping. Trapping's not all about deadfalls and snares and survival skills. Uh, there's legitimate sport trapping out there as well. You can do simple things, too, like plan and forget. I mean, how many perilous pear trees, pistachioless pistachio trees, and things like that are growing all over America? How many Americans are growing trees and bushes and vines for ornamental purposes that produce nothing for us? If we could simply replace 10% of the trees, bushes, and vines grown for ornamental purposes in America today, in backyards, suburban areas, landscape situations, parks, schools, things like that. I, I figured it out one time. It's like 50,000 tons of free food. That's not an exaggeration. That was literally, I can't remember the exact number, but when I did the calculation, it was an ungodly number of tons of food. And I think 50,000 is under what it actually was. Maybe it was 100, 110,000 tons or something like that that we could produce by doing nothing other than instead of planting a Bradford pear, planting an actual pear. So I really want you to consider maybe if you have that bear patch of ground and you're thinking about putting an azalea there, maybe put some sort of a berry bush there. And then just let it go. I mean, you do the pruning once a year. You water it the same. Once it's established, it pretty much takes care of itself. It does, the, all these things that produce food for us take the same level of maintenance that all the stuff that we have out there that we just have out there for looks. So really think about that. Next one, small livestock. Chickens are taking off like wildfire right now, man. There's, there's chickens in all kinds of places of America that the chicken had all but become extinct from. You know, so really think about what you can do with small livestock. There's other options. Um, Jason Akers, the self-sufficient gardener podcast guy. Um, his area, I think he just felt like he didn't have enough room for chickens and the neighbors were a little bit too, hey, what's going on in there type of thing. So he does quail. And he tractors the quail just like somebody would tractor the, the chicken. So he's got his little movable cage and he moves it around and the quail scratch up the ground and manure the earth and eat the bugs and dig out the weed seeds and do the same thing chickens would do. And folks, I don't know if you've ever eaten a quail egg, but they're pretty dadgone good. And I'll tell you what's really good. You take that quail and you kill them. <laughs> and I mean, come on, that's part of what livestock's all about. You whack his little quail head off and uh, you pluck him and you split him dead in half and spread him out and you grill him over mesquite and that's some of the best eating you can do. So you've got a small bird that re reproduces readily, provides multiple inputs for you, uh, maybe a little bit less likely to tip off the neighbors if something's going on than chickens, produces eggs, produces meat. Um, 
you know, it's all about being creative. People are starting to do dwarf goats. I've even seen some people doing dwarf cattle. Uh, there's some, there's a guy here doing dwarf longhorn steers. I bet their beef's pretty good. Uh, I'm not big on keeping larger mammals for meat, but I certainly don't oppose anybody else doing it. And, and the reason I'm not so much on keeping the larger mammals for meat is because it's a lot of inputs that they require. If I had a hundred acres, I'd probably have a few cattle and some maybe some goats and stuff like that running around. Uh, but with only five acres and it being wooded mountain land and all, I could do it here, but I'm going to have to bring in a lot of feed. Probably the best thing for meat production for the individual with small livestock is rabbits. Uh, they take a very little space, very easy to set up, kind of a real production-oriented system. And I think even with a relatively small uh, area, you can grow maybe 50% or more of the feed that you give the rabbits yourself so you don't have to bring in 100% of the feed. And you can probably, for a family, produce a rabbit a week out of a relatively small system. You can certainly produce two rabbits a month. That's that's not even a challenge. So, And then the rabbits produce some of the best manure for your gardens that, that are available. So small, small livestock. I, I'm not saying do rabbits or do quail or do chickens. or Ducks are another great one. I think ducks is something we're going to do here. Uh, I'm saying do something or at least consider doing something with them because they bring so much to the table. Next up is like this huge umbrella term permaculture, which I'm going to talk about briefly today. Um, just for those of you who are not aware of it, maybe are new listeners to the show, go to the site, put permaculture in the search box, and start listening to some of my shows on permaculture. It's an entirely different way to think about growing your own food, and it's an entirely different way to think about solving problems and understanding systems and farm forestry and food forestry and, and all of the other things that we can do uh, to produce food without... You know, with, with the concept, I'll give you the, the basic concepts of, of permaculture. First is a prime directive. A prime directive of permaculture is the only responsible thing, the only responsible choice that we can make is to take responsibility for ourselves and for our, our children. That it, that's the only thing we as humans can do that's responsible, is be responsible for our own actions and for our future and for our children's future. Uh, the next one is the three ethics, care of the earth, Care of people, return of surplus. So if you're doing something permaculture way, it doesn't damage the planet, it doesn't damage people, and it does produce a profit. I think that's where some of the granola-chewing hippie permaculturists don't understand the third ethic of permaculture. When you look at the work being done by the true pioneers of permaculture, Bill Mollison, Jeff Lawton, guys like that that are going into the third world and teaching people permaculture techniques to feed themselves, they realized if the techniques don't work better than what the people already know, they won't use them. If the techniques are not profitable, they're not sustainable. These people need to be able to feed themselves, they need to be able to produce a surplus, and they need to be able to sell it into their local economy at a fair price. That's what permaculture really is. For the people that think permaculture is all about hippie nirvana, I'm sorry, you're wrong. That's not what the founder believes. There's nobody that's had a bigger footprint in permaculture than Bill Mollison. And that is his entire ethos, that permaculture is profitable. And that if you do it the right way in the right places, by practicing it, you can become a very wealthy person without hurting people, without hurting the earth. Isn't that cool that there actually is a way to be profitable without being damaging? Permaculture is a huge concept. It does kind of incorporate gardening, uh, plan and forget, and things like that that I've already talked about today, but it's so much bigger I couldn't leave it out. Because a true permaculture system will eventually create an abundance, 
And that's what it's really all about when you're producing your own food. You want a surplus. So research permaculture, if you haven't listened to my other shows, just couldn't leave it out of the list today. The next one, and one I'm really excited about getting set up this year, is aquaponics. I don't think that there's a more productive system in the world than a well-run aquaponics system. When I have a system that can grow massive amounts of vegetable matter in a relatively small space and produce protein in the form of fish for me, uh, it's unbelievable that that, that that even exists, that that's even possible. I think, you know, what's what the reason guys back in like Thomas Jefferson's day weren't doing aquaponics, they didn't know what a greenhouse was in, in its true form today. Uh, they didn't have electricity to run a pump. Uh, they didn't have plastics and things like that to make tanks out of. And the concept never was presented to them, and they never understood uh, how it would work. They just didn't know. It was, a, it was about true ignorance, a lack of knowledge that this could even be done. I think that if it could have been created in a way that would have made it work, using wind power to run pumps or something like that, the way they pump water in Holland or something, uh, in some way, that an aquaponic system could have been built in its current form in the days of Jefferson, I think everybody would have done it. I think they, the people would have looked at it like magic and thought this was the greatest thing ever created. I got vegetables I can grow deep into the winter. I've got uh, systems where I can grow weeds. I can feed the weeds to the fish. I can grow maggots in a pile of waste and feed that to the fish. I, I can grow some of my excess vegetation and give that to the fish. The fish provide for the plants. The plants provide for the fish. I get to eat plants. I get to eat fish. I need an area, you know, let's say 8 foot by 12 foot for a relatively large system that will produce a significant amount of both vegetable and protein for me. And if I double that, I can produce probably more than a family can use. Oh my God, these people would have fell over. And if we brought them forward into the future and we showed them that this technology exists today in addition to things like iPads and iPods and Internets and all this other stuff... And they, they would be like, well, where, where are all of them at? What, 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 do you, what, what do you mean there's only a few of them? What do, you, what do you mean there's only a few people doing this? Why, why isn't everybody doing this? These people have these houses all over this place you call suburbia, and, and they all have these yards, and they all have room for one of these things, and they don't have one? What, what the hell's wrong with you people? I, I really believe that's what a lot of our founders would say. I think anybody from the time frame would say, what the hell's wrong with you? Clean fish, clean food, it's self-contained. They wouldn't even know what self-contained means. You'd have to explain it to them. They would think it was the greatest thing ever. And we look at it as some kind of a fringe thing. So I really think aquaponics is something that if you're serious about your long-term self-sufficiency, we need to look at. I also think it's one of the things that's relatively easy. If you want something fully and wholly self-contained, I think you can get 90% there. You can do solar for your power. You can grow a lot of your own food. You're probably still going to use some commercial food, but you can get the system so close to being self-sufficient. If you ever had to go there, you could. And maybe you'd have to back your production down a little bit, but you could do it. And I think it's one of the real sustainable long-term solutions to one of our real problems, which is our food sources. Container gardening, I, I threw in even though I talked about gardening earlier, because I think that a lot of people listen to a show like this and say, yeah, what about me? I, I've got this deck on an apartment. I've got, you know, I just did a show on container gardening. If, you're, if you didn't listen to that one, go back and listen to it. Because I believe that you can find space to container garden even if you don't have any directly. You can find commercial areas that are paying for people to maintain plants there. 
that you could go in and say, I'll do it for free, make the containers look really, really sharp, the plants look really, really sharp, all I want is the space and I get to take the food. Right? You could, you could get rooftop spaces from commercial locations and tell them, I'll get you good press for being green. There are so many ways you could take container gardening kind of into areas where you don't think you can garden at all. Uh, Johnny, who's helping me with the deck, he said he has about four, uh, four raised beds and all they are is he just screwed together two by, tw- uh, two by twelves, uh, w- that are four foot wide. So he's got very big, long, 12-foot by 4-foot wide beds. And this guy's, uh, you know, uh, a carpenter. He could do anything he wanted. Basically, he just took the 2x12s, screwed them into some 4-foot uh, sections cut off, threw it on level ground, and filled it up with dirt. That's it. That's, a, that's the total extent of what he's doing with his raised beds. And he said he, he can grow more tomatoes, squash, cucumbers, peppers, things like that, than his family could ever help to eat with just a few beds. In essence, it's a form of container gardening because he's got really tough soil, really rocky soil, kind of like we do here. And, you know, that's one of the things that raised beds gardening does for you. So that doesn't have to be just beds laying on the ground. That can be done anywhere. Folks up the road from me, I talked about this during my container gardening show. They go to junkyards. They get cheap bed liners from trucks. They put them back-to-back together so that the two open ends come together and overlap a little bit. They take four-foot um, fencing stakes, the ones you pound in the ground with a fence pole pounder, uh, and they pound them all around it to hold them in so that they're held together. And what they've begun to do to make them look more aesthetically pleasing is there's rocks laying everywhere around here. They're basically piling the rocks up around there. By the time they're done, you won't even see the bed liners anymore. And they have four or five of those, and they produce almost all the food that they eat uh, as far as vegetable matter in the summertime. So container gardening is something you can take on a whole new level if you'll open your mind to what container means. It can be a little self-watering container with a few herbs and another one with some tomatoes and another one with a pepper plant on that small deck on the sunny side of an apartment. Or it can be something much larger with much more production going on with it. The last one is food preservation. I think that if you're going to do all these methods of food production, you need to learn things like canning, dehydrating with meat. You need to learn smoking, sausage making, biltong making. I think we need to reestablish the skill set uh, of actually doing something with our food because it opens up another level as well, though. I can also now go down to the farmer's market uh, near the end of the harvest season for green beans and buy green beans for 59 cents a pound. I can bring them home, I can throw them in my dehydrator and make a bunch of them into dehydrated beans. I can put some of them uh, into a canning process. I can flash freeze some of them. And I've got three different kinds of green beans with three different levels of sustainability. My dehydrated ones can last, you know, a decade. My canned ones are good for a year or two before they start to lose flavor. My frozen ones are good for a year or two. Uh, probably a year is about as long as you want to keep your blanched frozen green beans. You want to blanch a lot of the vegetables before you flash freeze them. Too much to go into today. But um, but if the freezer goes out, i got to eat them all real quick or i got to lose them. So each one of those components, uh, so people say, well, which one do I do? And my response is kind of all of them. The, free, the dried ones, right? Um, they're good in casseroles and soups and stews, but dried green beans just never seem to fully reconstitute. They never make a good side dish. They're okay. I'll eat them if there's nothing else. But if I have to choose between that and flash frozen, well, I'd much rather have flash frozen. Flash frozen, though, I'm dependent on the freezer. So when they're canned, canned green bean much better than a dehydrated green bean for an actual plate of food, meat here, potato here, green beans there. Uh, but, you know, the dehydrated ones, again, soups, stews, casseroles, things like that, they're great for. So if we start to learn preservation, now we can go out and fish 
We can preserve our fish with smoking. We can preserve our game with biltong and jerky. We can go out and get those blueberries and dehydrate them and make blueberry raisins, which are just freaking awesome. Uh, we can go out and pick wild apple and crab apple and dehydrate that. I mean, there's so many things that we can begin to do where we take all the other things that we're doing, gardening, foraging, hunting, fishing, combine them with food stores, and we can also buy foods from the system, yes, but then take some level of the production process in-house and preserve that food for the long term. So I know this was like a whirlwind today, man, I'm throwing like things at you like boom, 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 but it's, you know, I, I'm really excited about the future of the show, about the future for the audience, and I think that the more we do to take responsibility for our own food supply, the better off we're all going to be. Today's show wasn't really to tell you how to do any of these things individually. I have done shows almost on every single one of them, uh, full shows on just the one thing. I'll do them again because we need to learn more about them. And as I learn more about them, I'll share them with you. As I have failures, I'll share my failures. If I have successes, I'll share my success. Today was really to get you thinking and make you realize, you know what, if there's that much, if there's that many things I could be doing, Other than just going to the freaking grocery store, well, hell, I need to do one or two of them. So here's I wrap up today. I'll ask you, which one or two are you going to do? You know, and if you're already doing one or two, which one or two more are you going to add? How many things can you think of that I didn't? Put them in the show notes. What are other ways that we can take part in feeding ourselves and feeding our neighbors and take more control over our food supply? This is important. It really is. It's a skill that we've lost so much of that we need to reclaim. And so many new technologies are evolving it. So while we lost some of the, the, the wisdom that a family in the 1920s had, we've also gained aquaponics. We've gained permaculture in its current form. We've gained hydroponics. We've gained the concept of container gardening using plastics that didn't exist in the 1920s. We have a better understanding of nature and ecology. We know so much more than those people did. If we take what we know and what they knew and we put it together, imagine what we can do. Because food shortages and higher food prices are coming. Uh, again, the World Bank, I, you know, I'll put the same link I put yesterday for that story. Ch Chairman of the World Bank says we are one crisis or one event away from a crisis in regards to the economy and our food supply. And... Folks, this technology evolution has its other side of the sword that cuts the other way. This genetic modification, spraying our food with pesticides, making our food what I consider poisons, that's not going to stop. And they're going to do it until everything on the shelf in the store has some trace of it in it. And you probably won't be able to feed yourself 100% and stay 100% away from it, but I'd rather eat 10% of it than 100% of it. And it's all choice. And it's a better way to live. If you start doing these things, you'll find more fulfillment in your life. You'll get more out of your life. And you'll actually live a better, healthier life. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Once again, coming to you from Hot Springs, Arkansas. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough. Or even if they don't. Let me show you a better way.
can't pay. Cause nobody else. 